Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden interviews Grace Jisung Kim to discuss her new book, Hope in Disarray. They discuss the role Faith has in the wake of the pandemic, her work towards ending the invisibility of Asian American women, and what Christianity means to her as a person of color. All of this and more today on Lines from Loganberry. Grace Jisun Kim received her Master's of Divinity from Knox College of the University of Toronto and her PhD from the University of Toronto. She's a professor of theology at Earl Ham School of Religion. Kim is the author or editor of 20 books, including the timely book, Invisible, which will be published in November, 2021, in which she examines encounters with racism, sexism, and xenophobia as she works towards ending Asian Americans' women's invisibility. She also co-edited a series called Asian Christianity in the Diaspora. Today's discussion is about hope and disarray. Good morning and happy Pentecost. Welcome to Lines of Loganberry. Well, thank you so much, Maisha, for inviting me to be on with you. It's so exciting. And thank you for that really wonderful introduction. It makes me sound so much better than I am in reality. So thank you for that. And I just, you know, when you describe Loganberry books, I just, it's like a destination. So I would love to go one time and maybe sign some of my books and and purchase some of the books there too. So I'm just excited and I hope to visit it one day. And I'm just excited to be with you you to have this dialogue on my latest book, Hope and Disarray with Pilgrim. And to just make a note, my first book, Grace of Sophia, was published by Pilgrim. So it's a nice bookend for me right now. The first book was with Pilgrim and then my latest one. And then the Invisible will be coming out later, as you mentioned. But I'm just excited that Pilgrim was able to publish the bookends right now. And they are close to Loganberry, right? They're located close. They're right here in Cleveland, Ohio, really, really close to the bookstore. And we are so grateful to have this relationship with them. Um, And it's already been fruitful. And we know it's even going to, it's going to grow in increasing abundance going forward. Yeah, thank you. That's (laughs) wonderful to hear. (laughs) Okay, so let's do a quick summary of Hope and Disarray. Hope and Disarray is at its core, a book of spiritual and theological reflections. Its intended use is a spiritual devotional and also a starting point for group discussions. It's divided into three parts, living in the church, living in culture, and living in relationship. The living in the church is probably the most traditional part of the book, discussing high holidays such as Advent and Easter. Living in culture and living in relationship take on contemporary and edgy topics, internalized racism, objectification, sexual abuse, and just getting along with your friends from the standpoint of progressive Christianity. So, Grace, I was wondering from your introduction, 21 Roman numerals, could you read a paragraph that begins, being an immigrant informs my experience as a woman? Okay. 
Being an immigrant informs my experience as a woman, which informs my work as a theologian and thus as a Christian, just as being Asian American informs my experience of being a minority. But all these channels of influence have no direction. They ebb and flow every which way simultaneously. I see how the multitudes of titles have brought about the sexism and racism that permeates our society at large. Because I grew up in a time and place of less social awareness, nearly all my early experiences have been wrought with explicit prejudice. I continue to bear the internal wounds of this experience, and whatever titles you bear have likely also brought you trouble through these skins, we are shown a world of constant social, economic, religious, and political afflictions with little say in how it is. We grow weary of them, tired of them, accept them to be a part of our nature. Most of us give in to these issues, believing that their inevitability is enough cause to become apathetic. But this is the easy route. It is a road traveled. It is one that is self-fulfilling, temporary, and straightforward. Living with hope is much more of a challenge. It begs you, despite your suffering, to confront life with all the dimensions of its complicated truth. To confront the truth that life does not end in vain. Living in hope is to uphold expectations for goodness and the ultimate revelation of the Son of God. Thank you so much. I asked you to read that because it was a perfect summary of what you mean when you said that hope is a risk, that hope is not something passive, that it's something active and forceful that you do. It was one of my favorite paragraphs. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Glad to read it for you and for the listeners. So thank you. Throughout my life, my atheist friends call back to colonialism to discredit Christianity. Rightfully, they summarize the role of of the Christian church in subjugating people in Africa, Asia, and North America. The history repeats itself throughout the world, first the conquistadors, then the church. For my own people, Black Americans who endured slavery, slave society stripped us of our language and our gods, and replace them with Christianity as a justification for enslavement. How do you reconcile Christianity as a means of oppression and colonialism with your practice as a Presbyterian Christian theologian? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think it's a very timely question. And it's something that I've actually struggled with a lot. So I touch it on this book too. You know, there is this long history of horrible things done in the name of Christianity. And even myself, when I was studying theology, I kept saying, should I leave the church or do I stay in the church? It's a struggle because, as you mentioned, the enslavement of Africans here and in the American soil and just all over, there's been different forms of either war or or genocide in the name of Christianity that has happened. Even here, um, the Native Americans, the genocide, because the Christians, so, you know, so-called Christian colonialists thought that they were there was something wrong with them so this whole um, murder of of the natives here that 
you know, we only have about 2% left out of, you know, this whole continent was just full of um, Native Americans. So people ask me that, and I, you know, I struggle with it. And I think we need to be aware that things are done in the name of Christianity, but it isn't Christianity. So I think here in, in the U.S., we're struggling with Christian nationalism as if it is a form of Christianity. And things get distorted. When the genocide happened, that was distortion of the good news. When the, enslave, the enslavement of African Americans here, that's a distortion. When the Asian workers, you know, they were indentured workers, that's a distortion. You know, when we took a me Mexican land away from Mexico, that's a distortion of of the good news. So sometimes I use the term that it's not really Christianity that people are preaching or believing in when all these forms of destruction is happening, when genocide and murder and, and killing and slavery is happening. It To me, it is like, um, so it's a new word that I come up with. It's Americanity. It's not Christianity, but it's it's this American ideal or something that people think is Christianity, and then everything gets distorted. Because if we really study Christianity and the message of Jesus, and even the Old Testament, God is a God of liberation. God is a God of love and mercy who gives us hope. So anytime those things, the liberation is, is gone and hope is taken away and love is eliminated, that's really a distortion of Christianity. And so that's why we get a bad rap sometimes. People think, you know, Christians are terrible people. It's because it gets distorted in so many different ways and forms, even on a Sunday morning pulpit. You know, it gets distorted. And so I say that's not Christianity at all. It's Americanity, some form of this colonialist kind of understanding and distortion of the good news that's given to us through Christ and from God. So I'm, I'm excited that you asked me that question because it is so important. And I think what we went through with the last president, you know, that I thought that was so clear, a huge distortion of the good news. And people are confused. I think there's so many Americans who are confused about what is the good news and what is the distorted kind of Americanity, this Christian nationalism, that they will do things like the event, you know, the insurrection that happened, and they think they're doing it in the name of God. And so I think we have to be very careful. There's a, you know, we can't leave our brains outside. We need our brains. We need everything as a human being, our brains, our hearts, our minds, our spirit and our body. We need everything to understand the message of God, the message of Christianity and try to live out that message. I like that. I distinguish Americanity from Christianity. <laughs> Yeah. They wrapped the cross with the American flag and presented as if it is Christianity. But we have to be very careful and see, you know, what is the true message, you know, the gospel message. And, you know, it's sort of a pathway to one of the things that you really believe about being a very discerning Christian. Like Hope and Disarray really asks you to be smart and cosmopolitan in your faith. So in one of your essays, which is entitled The Racialization of Beauty, 
you take on the idealization of white female beauty. So even when describing idealized white female beauty, I personally fall back on words of praise, right? Fine features, slender body, hair like corn silk, swan-like neck. Now, Korea is known for its expertise in cosmetic surgery. It's the highest rate of plastic surgery per capita in the world with women, and probably men as well, having nose jobs, skin whitening, and double eyelid surgery. In my own culture, Black women spend enormous sums of money, often at Korean beauty product stores, purchasing hair. I read a fascinating article that this drive for human hair has actually created sort of a black market of Venezuelan women selling their hair at the Venezuelan border. So there's this cycle of bi POC women indirectly oppressing each other in a mad drive to achieve the white woman beauty ideal. At the end of the meditation on the racialization of beauty, you ask, if we are all created by God, are we not all beautiful? How do we embrace the beauty that God has given us? I want to pose the question back to you. How do we embrace the beauty that God's given to us? And what are, what are the implications? Yeah. You know, the whole book, there's about 28 essays and each of them, you know, start with a biblical reflection and end with questions. So there's an essay reflecting on these various issues. So I'm glad you picked the racialization of beauty because we as young kids, you know, when we're growing up as girls, particularly girls more than boys, are showing commercials, showing magazine covers. You know, there's just so much out there that really idolizes this white Euro kind of woman's beauty. So all the things that you described, and it, it gets internalized in us, and it gets very problematic. I remember when I was a young girl, um, the Korean friends I had would put like mask, not masking tape, but the thin tape the clear tape on their eyelids to have the double eyelid because they thought, uh, my Korean friends thought our eyes are really ugly. And then, you know, doing different things to our lips, our lips weren't as pretty. And then our noses, Asian noses are usually flatter. So, you know, anything you can do cosmetically, like just with makeup, people would try to do and then dye their hair blonde. There was just so much the striving to to meet the standard of white woman's beauty. And that's why even in Asia, as you, you described, the you know, number one place in the world is Korea for cosmetic surgery. It's face cosmetic surgery. And I think Brazil is a body uh, cosmetic surgery, number one. But when it comes to face, the whitening, you know, that's a big deal in Asia. So in India, Japan, China, Korea, everyone strives for this white, clear skin. And I don't know, people are using these chemicals. It can be very dangerous. We don't know all the side effects. So all this dangerous modes and all this money spent trying to make our noses bigger, our eyes bigger, our lips fuller, our traditionally our Asian jawline is square. So trying to thin that out, like it, it is going a little crazy, but it's like this treadmill and people can't get off because Western magazines are imported into Asia and they keep showing that white women are the standard of beauty. And whatever you do, you have to kind of meet that beauty. So you go through pain, you go spend a lot of money to change yourself. And I struggle with that because I keep seeing that in young girls today. 
and women of color girls. And it's so difficult for me to accept because, you know, we, we live in this world where God created all of us and we're very diverse people. I can't imagine if we all looked the same, if everyone had the same hair as me and everyone had the same eyes as you, Maisha. Like, yeah. If everyone looked the same, that would be so boring. So I think, you know, God created this world so beautifully. You know, I look outside, like trees and flowers and grass, there's so much color. The sky changes color. There is just so much beauty in the world. And I think that's the same with humanity. You know, some are tall, some are short, some are heavier and some are thin. This is the beauty of God's creation. And God created each one of us so beautifully. And I think because we're bombarded and particularly the added layer of social media now telling us who's beautiful and who's ugly and all the cyberbullying that happens when you look a little different, I think we have to be very careful and realize that we are all created in the image of God. That's what scripture tells us. We are all created in the image of God. And if we're all created in the image of God, we need to accept who we are. Internally, we have to accept. And outside, physically, God created beauty everywhere. The big birds and the small birds, the worms, the little beetles and the bugs that we may not appreciate. But, you know, everything is created for a purpose and beautifully. And so if we can keep sharing that message on a Sunday morning or during the week and even on social media, I think people, there'll be less bullying, less pressure to whiten our skin or straighten our hair or or put we different hair in our hair. Like I think we get over consumed by this thing that shouldn't be consuming us. So because I'm a woman and because I went through that as a child and my friends did that, it's a big worry that you know, and I have a daughter in college. She hasn't gone through that, but I know she struggles with it, that she wants to look a little less Asian and, you know, you can do certain things with makeup and et cetera. But I think accepting ourselves that God created us all so beautifully. Sometimes it's difficult, but I think it's something that we try our best to do, to accept us for who we are and to thank God and praise God for who we are. Yes. And you essentially double down on this idea of objectification in the very next essay, which was a tough one. I think that was that one was it was actually very difficult to read. The the next reflection was called the Asian American Butter. And in this one, you take on how Asian women are hyposexualized while Asian men are emasculated. So I was recently in fact, just yesterday, at the Cleveland Museum of Modern Art. And the exhibit that really caused me to rethink my own biases was an exhibit of a large blank wall, except for a bocce ball-sized hole in it that had a black and white movie images of a Black man in a corner dancing in a flamboyant manner that I associate with being queer. So entirely blank wall, except just a little hole, just a little viewpoint into a man dancing in a queer manner. And I feel like I got what the artist was trying to say to me. It was trying to say to me and me, Maisha, because you know what? I'm Black 
and I'm woke and I'm liberal, right? I'm all the best of things. But it was telling me that I had pigeonholed Black queer men, that to me, they were a caricature, they were Pose, and they were Mardi Gras, and I wasn't, that I was objectifying them, that I wasn't seeing the fullness of their being. My question to you, as you're dealing with the objectification of Asian women in that same hypersexualized manner, how can, how can we change how others view AAPI people in such an intimate way? And I have to say this again, when perhaps even our allies are guilty. So I, you know, I think as people of color, so African-Americans, Latinx community, um, Native Americans and Asian Americans, we are, you know, we experience racism, but then there's a lot of stereotyping that goes on. So we need to be aware that this is happening and try to break it down. You know, one of the earliest Asian immigration was in the 1500s when Filipinos came over, but then the larger percentage of Asians that were coming were in the 1850s, and majority of them were coming to work in the gold mines or on the railroad or some sugarcane farms in Hawaii. So they were all labor-intensive work. And so it was mostly men who came, and they all had aspirations of making a ton of money and then would go back home. Then they realized they never made enough money to make it back home. They were working as indentured workers. You had to pay back, and there was just no way to get out of the debt. So it was really tough. And so not many women came at that time. But then slowly in the late 1800s, a few of the women came, but then they were automatically categorized as sex workers. And so, and then some of them were made into sex workers. So this is kind of ingrained in our mindset here in America that, oh, Asian women are all sex workers. They're the uh, the geisha girls coming from Japan or, you know, they're coming here to satisfy. And then they were placed in that role. Not all of them. Some were, and that's how this kind of stereotyping of Asian women kind of happened. And then you see these in the movies and and the stories like Miss Saigon and uh, Madame Butterfly, the sex worker. They're always kind of portrayed in that manner. And then when the Asian men came, you know, there's a whole tendency to desexualize them. And then those who weren't working in the minefield, the railroad, then they got these like more feminine jobs, like cooking and cleaning and doing laundry. So they were given these kind of feminine roles and jobs. So it happened right from the beginning of our immigration story and it stayed with us. And so, you know, even movies like Breakfast and Tiffany, you get this goofy looking Asian man, Mr. Yoni Ishii, you know, buck teeth. He's like a clown. He can't be, he doesn't look like some, oh, like some power hero. Like he, he's a feminine and, you know, you, you just, make them desexualize. So I think we need a lot, we need to do a lot of work to stop the stereotyping of people of color, and particularly of women, because I know it happens with African American women too. So, you know, there's a lot of deconstructing that we need to do as a society, and even as Christians. And, you know, with this hypersexualization of Asian American women, you know, we see this, you know, being played out in the pandemic, where, You know, all this AAPI hate crimes are being committed. I think from last March 2020 till present time, over about 4,000 cases of hate crime against Asian Americans. And you know, they're not all recorded, but these 
of the recorded ones thus far, and there have been murder. And a lot of the attacks are against the elderly and then against Asian women. You know, they feel, people feel they can get away with it. You know, hitting an, an Asian American elderly, you can kill them and it's okay. You can just run away or targeting Asian women, Asian American women. When March 16 happened in Atlanta, where that young white male um, murdered eight people, six of them were Asians. You know, that was a targeted hate crime. Finally, they said it was a hate crime. Even before they said it was a hate crime, we in the community already labeled it a hate crime. Witnesses had already said when he went in there, he wanted to kill all Asians, but he targeted those spas specifically. He had already visited them. He wanted to target Asian American women. In his mind, maybe he was viewing them as very sexualized women or so forth, but this happens over and over again. So we need to stop this from happening and you know work towards just accepting us for who we are, who the men are. You know, it's a long road. And I think it's tied back to this racialization of, of beauty. We need to understand that every one of us is created in the image of God and to accept one another. We cannot distort people. We cannot stereotype people. We can't be xenophobic against other people. This world was created in a way that we were to live with one another, not to kill each other off or to hate each other or to abuse each other. So I think Christians, we are aware of it. We just can't live it out that way. So we need daily reminders of this. So in addition to the hypersexualization of Asian women, you talk about, and this is kind of in that last section of the book where you talk about living in relationship, you talk about the pressure that Asian Americans face with being the model minority, about how there's pressure and discomfort and thinking that you should constantly be overachieving. Can you talk about that? Yeah. The audience. Yeah. So, you know, I cover relationship, I cover climate change. So there's a lot of social justice issues that I try to cover. And I'm hoping that people who grab the book at Loganberry or order it online, because you have a whole book thing on online, if people go to their website, yeah, mm -hmm. um, that people can read it as individuals or as a family or even as a church um, study group, because these are issues that I, I deal with all the time. So when it comes to living in relationship, it's it's not easy. You know, living in relationship is so difficult. You know, that's why the divorce rate is so high. That's why there's so much, you know, estrangement in families. That's why friendships break all the time and colleagues at work fight and stab each other on the back. It's not easy. I remember before having kids, I thought, oh, it's going to be so wonderful, you know, having kids and blah, blah, blah. You have this fairy tale thing. And then once they're born and they realize they're monsters, you're like, oh my goodness, what did I do? Create all these monsters running around the house. But we realize, and then at that moment you go, I wish I could just live on an island by myself. <laughs> Nobody touched me, you know, because I had three little kids all under the age of four at one point. They're all running around me, on top of me, pulling my hair, pulling my shirt. It was a nightmare. So I just, you know, sometimes I lock myself in the bathroom and I don't want to come out. At those times I think, I wish I could live on an island all by myself. You know, this fantasy concept of being a motherhood is all down the toilet <laughs> and you just want to be by yourself, right? No friends, no family, no spouse, nobody. But we realize we are created to live in community. Yeah. So even when, you know, the Genesis story, when God created Adam, it's not good to be alone. So then created Eve. However you interpret that biblical story, we are all always living in community. 
And it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot out of us to build relationships. It's not easy. That's why, you know, marriage is, it's a working relationship. You got to work at it day and night, day and night, every day, because otherwise it falls apart. And that's with parent and child relationships. You know, I think it's very difficult. So you work on it. And, you know, that's why at the end of the day, if we don't work on it, divorces, broken relationships, wars happen because we just can't stand each other. You know, wars happen between countries that are just next to each other. You know, Korea and China have been at war for a long time. Korea and Japan, we're just all next to each other. You can't stand those people that are close to you. But we need to be reminded, you know, even Christ says, when two or more are gathered, I am there with you. We recognize that the presence of God is with us. And so it is very important. And that's why, you know, some people will say we don't need church. You know, who cares about church? But yes, we do need church. We need to be in community with those fellow believers. We need to be together to worship. We need to be together to serve God in our community. So that's why we cannot be an island or isolate ourselves because that's not how we were created. So, but it takes a lot to build a relationship. And I always say, you know, it's really difficult. And so we ask God to help us every day. We do. Yeah, because loving each other is hard. (laughs) It's very difficult. And you talk about that in um, the essay that's specifically titled Building Healthy Relationships. So in that essay, you wrote, we have to welcome pain. We have to accept it as an essential component of being connected to another. We need to try to cultivate and tend to our relationships despite inconvenience, pain, or even futility. We must try. So for me... Being a woman of a certain age and being married for 19 years, my intimate relationships these days are with my friends. Those are my intimate relationships. And it has been a pattern with my friends that if we had a a bad disagreement, we just never speak to each other again. And I experience those friendship breakups with um, as much emotional turmoil as if it had been a romantic relationship. But in your essay, you make a call to try to repair those relationships. So why did you believe in this essay that it was important to take on the idea of repairing relationships, of essentially taking a restorative tract on relationships through difficult periods? Yeah, I I always think restorative justice, whether it's that kind of a relationship or reconciliation between people and community. I always feel we should try to restore relationships. Um, When I was in a primary school, one of my close friends, we had an argument and, you know, looking back, I don't recall what the argument was, but it was very tumultuous. And then we stopped speaking to each other for years and we went through high school without speaking. You think, Once you end a relationship, and it's interesting that you said sometimes it's just as bad as a romantic relationship. You think it's done and over with, but still there is this uh, nagging pain because you reflect and you go, you don't know what the problem was. In many cases, we don't. But I think we are called to love. You know, the commandment in scripture, the two that we need to remember that Christ said is to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our neighbors. And so... 
when relationships start breaking down, I think we do our best to love. That is probably the harder road to take, but I think we all should be encouraged to take that road because I can't imagine a world where we all give up. Every time there's a fight, we just build enemies you know, here and there, even long-term friendships become enemies because then that's a very destructive world. It's a very hostile world. And we want a loving world. We want a peaceful world. And that's a call from God to love one another. And it's it's hard. Loving, you know, Hollywood makes it so easy, but loving is a hard work. And scripture tells us it's hard work. So we do it. You know, Jesus said, when you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. And so when it means feeding the poor and clothing the naked and visiting the those in prison, you know, those are hard things. But then even when we break relationships that are close to us, whether it be a parent, child, siblings, I know a lot of siblings, because of the last presidency, it's like broken. They can't even get back together, even though we have a new president. So I think it's hard. I'm not saying repairing relationships is any easy thing, but I think it is a worthwhile journey. And we may need other friends along the way to help us, but I hope that is my hope that we can all strive to kind of repair relationships because we are living in a relational world. And you, you also make call to vulnerability, especially in your essay on parenthood. That essay was so good in particular, I was actually talking to a few of my friends at the bookstore about it. Where the pain comes from in this essay is that if you became a mother, right, you pour your heart and your mind into your children. Like they are your primary concern for decades. And then they give you a kiss and wave goodbye and go to college. They say, thanks, bye. And that leaves a hole in your heart, right? An extraordinary yep. amount of pain. And your prescription for that is to accept your vulnerability. Can you tell us how you describe for people to how to find strength in admitting vulnerability? Yeah. Yesterday, I, I, I did two different talks, one for um, a church. And then in the evening was a talk for a bunch of PhD students, early career professors about publishing a book. So one of the questions posed to us panelists, I think there were four or five of us on the panel, was something like, what do you do with rejection? Because, you know, you submit your book proposal to a publisher and you get rejected. You know, a few of the professors were giving some advice about, you know, you just try this, another publisher, etc. I was the only woman professor on the panel. So we got a bunch of men. And then I just started talking about how my whole life is a life of rejection. You know, as a professor, if you choose this route, there's just so much rejection that goes with it. Rejection of book proposal, rejection of jobs, rejection of journal articles, rejection of promotion. Like the rejection is endless. And I said, it's almost like these Hollywood actresses, they get rejected from roles. So I just went on about being rejected. And I forgot to add, when I was a PhD student, my TA told me he can fill his whole bathroom with letters of rejection. These were mostly from job applications. And I said, oh, really? I'm like, I was just starting my PhD. I said, oh my goodness, the whole bathroom. But now looking back, I can like paste, plaster my whole, all of my three kids' walls, plus maybe my own bedroom wall with just letters of rejection. And so I shared not that part about 
plastering the wall. I forgot to share that. And I thought about it this morning, but I shared my vulnerability and I said, you just have to accept the rejection and then move on. You just have to just get stronger and go on. And then, so I got a lot of email this morning because it was a webinar and people were there, but I got a lot of emails actually thanking me for being so vulnerable and sharing my vulnerability. And I thought, oh, and then I always regret, did I share too much? Because I always feel, even right now, am I sharing too much with the world? But I think it's good to show because I think in the age of social media, we just post all these beautiful pictures of us dining and whining and going on these trips, except for during the pandemic. And we want to present ourselves in this fabulous lifestyle and that we can conquer the world. We are the best out of the best. So we do that on social media. And then the rest of us who feel like crap, we're going, oh my goodness, what's wrong with me? But I think we need to show our vulnerability that we're not this great person that we want to show on social media. And I think when we are able to show our vulnerability, for me, then it allows the spirit of God to work within me. Because I think if we're not vulnerable, then we carry this pride with us. And, you know, scripture talks about pride and, you know, we shouldn't be so proud. But I think once we show a bit of humility and some vulnerability and be vulnerable in our life, and I always feel, you know, I can die any moment. I think living with that understanding that our lives are fragile that, you know, our life could end at any time. And pandemic clearly showed us that even healthy people lost their lives in days. Then I think, you know, then it becomes a little easier for me. And I'm hoping those who read it, they, they can be aspire to think in different ways. You know, I don't have all the answers in the book. Mine is more of an exploration and, and for you to join me in these reflections on hope in this world. But I'm hoping that you know, once we recognize our own vulnerability, it really opens our hearts to ask the Spirit to come and help and to fill our lives with God's Spirit. So that is my hope. And I hope when people read these different reflections, that they will be challenged and that they will actually draw something else from it, because I hope it just takes on a life on its own. It was my own personal reflection, but I'm hoping that people will reflect and maybe be motivated to write too. I don't know. You're talking about, you know, summoning the spirit, summoning the spirit through vulnerability and sort of letting go of your pride. You also talk about how important it is for Christians to rely on one another, how important it is for physical congregation to enact, if you will, the living body of Christ, and also to, you know, as we Christians say, to support each other in each other's walks. Like we have to be there for one another because this isn't easy at all. Churches have been closed for a year now. Yeah. And people probably have gotten completely out of the regular practice of once a week church. So what would you recommend for pastors and then also for people who are members of churches to bring the flock actually back into the building of the church? I think it's going to be a challenge. And today, as you mentioned, it is Pentecost and some of the churches are now slowly opening with um, the different, you know, you got to wear the mask and social distancing and there's all these uh, rules that people have to uh, follow. And it depends on actually the state that you live in. So I, I saw on social media, a few churches opening up today. And a few weeks ago, I preached for the first time in a church and people were all separate. It's not a big church, so it was fine. But I think 
it is going to be hard for people to go back to church. People have gotten in the routine of just sleeping in and maybe just turning on the laptop if they feel like it and watching a worship or listening to a sermon. And people have kind of gotten used to the habit of, oh, I don't need to get dressed up to go to church. So I think it's going to take some time. I think there are going to be a few that can't wait to go back because they've been like dying to meet people and, and hug and or just at least be face to face. So there's going to be a few of those, but I think maybe the majority of us are going to be a little lazy. But I think Christ calls us to be um, Christ's hands and feet in the world. And yes, we can do little things on our own by ourselves, but still, I think we need the community to work together. You know, I know churches do feeding the secondhand clothing stores, the food pantry, visiting the poor and the sick. There's so many things that churches and church groups do. So I think we're going to slowly realize that, you know what, there's a lot of work that needs to be done when this pandemic is over. People have lost family members, friends, people are lonely, people are going to be still sick. This ongoing illness after you catch COVID is ongoing and maybe a lifelong thing. And you keep reading about it and it's horrible that they're still living with it. Some of them for over a year after they caught it. So there's going to be a lot of work to do when things start slowly opening up. People are financially strapped. People lost businesses, jobs. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So I think people will need to get together as communities of faith, as church, in whatever form that we can. And I think we can encourage one another that it's great to be in fellowship. This online can go so far, but we need to be the hands and feet and work together. I'm hoping, I'm always hopeful that it, it, it will take time for people to come back, but eventually I'm hoping that they all will come back. And maybe those who never went to church will actually come and explore church too. That would be the best of all possible worlds if like yes. uh-huh. new people would come within the doors. Grace Jisun Kim, her most recent book is Hope and Disarray. Grace, it was really wonderful to talk to you today. It was uplifting and really centering. Thank you so much. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash loganberrybooks at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com, check our social media at loganberrybooks, and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.